And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it's been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it's written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will beat you up, or bear you up, not beat you up. <laughs> on their hands. They will be, here we go. Um, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of the Lord. That was Trevor Black's first time ever reading scripture at Midtown. Give it up for him. Yeah. Um, well done. Trevor Black is the, is the kind of name, I feel like I have to say first and last name every time I say it. Trevor Black, Trevor Black. Uh, hey, what Trevor was just reading from was the Bible, but uh, last week we put one of these copies of Luke, the Gospel according to Luke, on every chair. Um, many of you took them. In fact, you took all of them. Uh, and so we have ordered a bunch more. They are back in the back on the back table. Let me tell you a little bit about why we did that. Um, this series of Luke that we began last week, uh, we're calling it um, Meeting Jesus. That Luke is, a, is, is not, for if, you're, if you've been a Christian for a week, or if you've been a Christian your whole life, or if you're not even sure what you believe about this Jesus of Nazareth, um, Luke is a great way to get to know him or to get to know him more. And so we hope in this series that you're meeting Jesus, maybe for the first time or maybe for the millionth time, meeting him and meeting with him. And there's no better way to meet with Jesus than through his word. And so we want to make that as simple as possible for you. So we got these very Pinteresty uh, copies of the book of Luke, and they're great. Bring them to church with you every week. Take notes in them. Write down questions in them. Uh, spend time in them between Sundays. That'd be a great practice. Um, and so much so that um, we, we literally, uh, we're, we're spending our dollars so that you would not even have an excuse to be able to say, well, I don't, I don't even have a Bible to read. Oh, here it is. Start with Luke and journey through it with us this semester as we go. It's, in, it's in, in particularly important as we come to passages like today. Last week we began the mission of Jesus in the book of Luke where he announces what his mission is all about. This week we're actually backing up a couple of verses. We're backing up one story um, and we're going back into the story before last week where Jesus announces his mission. And we're doing that, this, this temptation of Jesus that we're studying today, we're doing that because right before Jesus announces his mission, he goes to war with his enemy. Right before Jesus announces his mission that we looked at last week, Jesus' enemy is seeking to undermine the very mission. Right before Jesus announces his mission, his enemy is trying to stop the mission. And so we're looking at the temptation of Christ where the adversary of Jesus is seeking to destroy the mission before it started. But having this is very important because what we're going to study today, you'll see there, there is so much to talk about 
in these 13 verses. There's so much to unearth. There's so much gold to dig out in this, in this passage of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So much so that we're not going to get to it all. But the good news is, is you can go get to it all. <laughs> that after we spend some time in it today, I hope it lights up your imagination to go, I want to go read more about even just this one encounter of Jesus in the wilderness with his enemy. And this morning as we look at it, the first thing we need to note is that if you belong to Jesus, if you're a part of Jesus' kingdom, then Jesus' enemy is now your enemy. The same enemy that hates Jesus and his mission hates the people who have joined Jesus on that mission. And the same thing that he does to Jesus in this passage, seeking to undermine him and destroy him and ruin him, is the same thing that he's trying to do to us. And not only... Do we need to be aware of our enemy? If you belong to the kingdom of Jesus, you have an adversary, you have an enemy who's seeking to destroy you, and you need to know that, that knowing is half the battle, that if if you don't know that, that you have an enemy, then you've already lost. But more so than that, not only seeing how Jesus fights in this battle, not only seeing what weapons Jesus uses as we study this encounter, we're gonna ask a deeper question at the end. Why in the world did Jesus fight this battle in the first place? And as you've heard me say a couple times before, when I feel like there's too much in a passage to unearth and there's too much gold to dig out, uh, I give us an outline. And the outline isn't for you, it's for me. It keeps me on track so that I know here are three points. And all the other stuff, uh, go dig out on on your own. Um, Good luck with that. But um, I mean that, (laughs) seriously, you should have fun doing that because there's so much gold. So the three things we're going to look at today, this outline that will keep me on the rails this morning. First thing we're going to look at is the heart of the temptations. And the second thing we're going to look at is the heart of the responses. And then the third thing we're going to look at is the heart of Jesus. The heart of the temptations, the heart of the responses, and the heart of Jesus. So briefly, before we dive into uh, too much, we're going to, starting on the first layer here, we're going to just look briefly at each individual temptation, the three temptations that are given to us. Matthew in his gospel account and Luke in this gospel account both only give us um, three temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness are the same in both gospels. And it's not meant for us to believe that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and he only was tempted three times. No, Matthew and Luke are very clear. Jesus was tempted and taunted and assaulted by his enemy the entire 40 days. He, they give us three examples because these three examples are the archetypal three. That all of our temptations, all temptations, have in common these threads that can be pulled out of these three. These three represent the whole of what Jesus faced for the entire 40 days. The relentless assault of Jesus in the wilderness. And so what's important to know as we look at these three that represent the whole, what was true for Jesus is true for us, is that we, like Jesus, are only ever tempted by what we love. It's not tempting for me to want to go beat up my grandmother, because I don't love the thought of seeing her in pain. But the vices that Satan would tempt me with, he's not going after a vice that I merely enjoy. He's going after something far deeper that I have an affection for. He's going after something I already long for, and he's giving me a way to try to satisfy it. Temptations are always driven by affections. Satan comes to us with something that we already are in love with. It's the same thing for Jesus here. 
The driving of the allure of temptation is always something deeper. may not feel like it, may not seem like it, but you would not be interested in the things that Satan is tempting you to if you were already not in love with something that that temptation seemed to satisfy. There's something underneath. There's a love, there's an affection, there's a desire. So if you open up the back of a grand piano, which I've done many times, <laughs> actually never, uh, and you see all the strings laid out there, and I had to ask the crowd the first at the 9 o'clock service, how many strings are on the back of a piano? I think I've figured it out, but how many do we think there are? Nobody's, nobody has any idea. Nobody, everybody's scared. Somebody at the last service said eight, uh, which is not true. Uh, they've been playing a children's piano, and they came up afterwards, and they said, no, I said 88, and I said, liar. But... Um, <laughs> I think there's 240. Uh, we, we're, we're pretty sure there's 240. I went down the street and counted some. Um, no, I didn't. But 240, 240 strings in the back of a piano. And it's been said before that what Satan loves to do is he loves to come and open up the grand piano strings of your heart and open up the back and he sings a note, a note on key. And when he sings a note, all that he's doing is singing over the back of a grand piano. One of those strings will begin to, to reverberate. One of those strings will begin to respond to the key that's being sung. But all that Satan has to do is to sing into the way that you're already made. Sing into who you already are and what you're already tuned to. He's just singing a song over the heartstrings of your heart. He's singing a song to get your, your already tuned piano strings to respond. That's driving the enticing nature of all of our temptations Temptations are driven by affections when our enemy sings over us. So as a brief overview of the three, we're going to walk through each three very quickly. Let's start with the first. The first temptation, context is important. Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days. We're told that he doesn't eat during those 40 days. We're told twice in there how hungry he is. Jesus was a human being. He's famished. Repeating how hungry he is, Luke, the author, is trying to get us to understand he's starving. He's famished. So the devil comes to a hungry human Jesus and says to him in verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Turn this stone into bread. You're hungry, aren't you? <laughs> Satan knows that Jesus is hungry, and here's the heartstring that Satan is singing to. Here's the heartstring that, that Satan is singing to Jesus. Jesus Get what you feel like you need more than anything right now. You're hungry. Great. Here's some bread. Maybe the way that it looks for us is you're lonely. Great. Here's some intimacy. You're exhausted. Hey, here's, some, here's a way to rest. Here is something that will satiate or perhaps numb what you're experiencing as your greatest feeling right now. Are you feeling something deeply? Are you 40 days hungry with loneliness? Are you 40 days hungry with exhaustion? Are you 40 days hungry with isolation? Are you 40 days hungry with desire? Satan will come to that heartstring, the 40 days of hunger, knowing that about you and say, hey, that's awesome that you're hungry. Let me give you something that will satisfy that felt need right now. And Satan knows, and we know, if you've been alive long enough, that those feelings will come back again. And so all that Satan is interested in doing is numbing the feeling for a little bit. So how do we numb our feelings? Maybe we drink a little too much. Maybe we look at porn. Maybe we just zone out with Netflix. Maybe it's Netflix and chill. Or maybe it's a little more subtle than that. Is it possible that Satan is singing to the tune of your heart when you're scrolling through social media? 
and then all of the comparisons that are happening and all the stories you're writing about, all the people you see and all the things that people are saying and all the glory that people are getting and all the while, while you are scrolling, Satan is singing. Is it possible that Satan is singing when you're having an extra piece of cake? That I'm hungry, I don't wanna be hungry, I don't like the way that I look anyway, so maybe I'll just numb all of that by eating more. Or maybe when you don't have any cake. Maybe I'm hungry, but I can't actually act on the hunger because what that'll make me do to my body, and what I really wanna do is look a certain way, and so I can't even have any cake. Is it possible that on any scenario, when you are feeling something, Satan is singing? And what Satan is interested in doing is listen to your feeling more than you listen to anything else. That's what Satan is doing to Jesus right now. Are you hungry? I know you're hungry. 40 days without eating anything. Are you starving right now? Yes. Well, then we can just solve all this. Let's just get what you feel like you need right now. And so the first temptation is teaching us to be aware of what we're feeling and experiencing first. Are you hungry? Great, you need to know that. Because if you don't know how hungry you are or how lonely you feel or how tired you feel, then Satan has already won. But is it possible that in that experience of what you're feeling the most these days, that Satan is singing to you to get you to numb your greatest feeling? Temptation number two. And the devil took him up, this is verse five, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So Satan comes to Jesus. Uh, Luke doesn't tell us exactly how he does this. I'm sure it was a mystical, incredible experience. Uh, Luke or Matthew seems to hint that he took him up to this high mountain, but uh, he, he shows Jesus in a moment of time, in a flash, all the kingdoms of the world with all of their glory, with all of their power, with all of their authority, and he says, you can have that right now. It's as if Satan is coming to Jesus and saying, you're, you're into kingdoms, right? Like you're a king, right? You, you like this stuff. You like authority, you like glory, you like power, you like dominion. That's what you're all about, right? You've already announced that the kingdom of God is coming. So look at all of these kingdoms that you say are going to be yours one day, that you say you're going to rule over one day. Here it is. Here's all the authority. Here's all the glory. You can have it right now. There's one catch, though. Little asterisks in the contract. You have to bow down and worship me first. And what's so intriguing about this temptation from Satan to Jesus on this second round, alluring him with the kingdoms, alluring him with authority and power and glory, is that he's offering something not only that he knows Jesus loves and is all about, he's offering something to Jesus that we know from other parts of Scripture, Jesus is fully aware at this point in his life that he knows on the other side of his suffering, his death and resurrection, on the other side of that, his Father is going to give him all authority and all dominion and all power and all glory. So he knows, Jesus knows, on the other side of my suffering is all of the authority and all the power and all the, and all the glory. And Satan comes to him and says, you can have all that right now, and guess what? No suffering. You can have everything you want right now, and it won't cost you a dime. I know you want those things. Wouldn't it be a lot easier if you could have all of those things that you really want, and you don't have to suffer at all? Jesus would have to skip out on his mission of suffering Jesus would have to skip out on the very purpose for which he came. Here's everything you want, and you can have it without any cost. 
He's singing to the heartstrings because that tune, here is everything you want and it won't cost you anything. Here is everything you want and there won't be any suffering is exactly what all of our fantasy worlds tell us. Here's everything you want and it's completely void of pain. It won't cost you anything. It won't ever hurt you. It won't ever betray you. Here it is. Our fantasy worlds sing to us, here is everything you want and you will never be in pain. I don't care what you fantasize about. More money, more sex, more power, more influence, a different family, a family at all. Whatever is in your fantasy world, at the center of that fantasy world is you. And guess what? If we could pick apart your fantasy world for just a little bit, not only are you at the center of all that, you in that fantasy world are never in pain. No one fantasizes about being in more pain more suffering. We're fantasizing to get out of pain. There's just one problem with our fantasy worlds that promises everything we want with no suffering. Joy only exists in reality. Joy doesn't exist in the fantasy world. Fake joy does. Real joy only exists in reality. And one has to live in reality what is if one is ever going to experience joy. One has to live in reality with all of the suffering and all of the heartache and all of the loss and all of the pain. One has to live in reality if one is ever going to experience joy because joy only exists in reality. But our fantasy worlds call to us and they say, you can have everything you want. You can have all the kingdoms and all the glory that you want and it won't cost you anything. Side note, Satan says, you will have to bow down and worship me which is the biblical way, the biblical teaching of saying, if you go after your fantasy worlds, if you go after the promise of a fantasy world that has everything you want with none of the cost, everything you want with none of the suffering, guess what? It will actually end up enslaving you. It will actually end up putting you in shackles. That's what he's offering to Jesus. Here's everything you want without any pain. Here's everything you want without any suffering. Side note, you're gonna have to bow down to me, and I'm a cruel, harsh taskmaster. Fantasy worlds that promise us everything we want with no pain actually end up enslaving us. Temptation number three. Everybody keeping up? We good? I know this is a lot. We are just getting started. Temptation number three, starting in verse nine. And he took Jesus to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So, it's a little confusing. It's helpful to spend a little bit of time with it. Read the footnotes in your Bible to understand what exactly Satan is doing right here. Satan actually does his most sinister deed here. He takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple, a high place. They didn't have super high buildings back then. It was a high place on top of a hill in Jerusalem. He says, jump off of here. Just jump off of here. Because it's been promised to you that the angels aren't going to let you get hurt. It's been promised to you that the angels will catch you and they won't even let you strike your foot against the stone. You're not going to get hurt. Jump off of here and you'll be caught. But the sinisterness of what Satan does here, it's so dark and so twisted. Satan actually, please hear this correctly, I'm not stuttering, I'm not misquoting, Satan quotes scripture. Satan uses Psalm 91. Satan uses the Bible in his own sinister, twisted way to tempt Jesus. Because here's what he begins to do. He pulls Psalm 91 entirely out of context and just takes one little line out of it, which does promise God's protection for his people. 
And here's what he's telling, here's the temptation. Let me use this scripture and twist it. And now Jesus, you use this scripture in the same twisted way. Here's what he wants Jesus to do. Well, God has promised these things. And now Jesus, you have the right because God has promised them. Look at Psalm 91. God has promised them. You can get God's promises on your terms and in your own way. You can get God to deliver on his promises whenever you want and however you want. And if he doesn't do it, then maybe he's not the good one. God, don't you want good things for me? God, don't you see I'm hurting? Haven't you promised peace and joy? Well, I'm not getting those things right now. You've promised them, and they're not happening in the way that I want them to happen, so maybe I'm not sure about any of this. Satan's final temptation is for Jesus to demand to do and act on his promises in the way and with the agenda that we would have on our own terms. Could Satan be behind your use of scripture? That's terrifying. That we would go to the Bible and we would begin to use it for our own means and in our own way and have it say something that we want it to say so that then we can stand on that and point to it and go, well, this is not who you said you are and I'm standing on this and it's not happening the way I want it to happen right now so maybe I just don't believe any of it. So those are the three brief overviews, the particulars of each temptation the paying attention to the greatest need to get the numbing for the greatest need, hunger and bread. The fantasy worlds of you can have everything you want without any pain. And the third of getting God to act in the way that we demand on our timeline and with our agenda. These are the three archetypes of temptation and the way that our enemy works. And it's helpful to see kind of the way that he's moving in these three temptations almost on the surface. We're going to take one step down though. Because something happens in each temptation before the act that Satan is tempting Jesus with is presented. Something, Satan is fighting a, a pre-battle. Before he offers him to turn stone into bread, before he offers him to bow down and worship him, and before he offers him to jump off the temple, something else is presented to Jesus. First, something happens before the act. It's that all temptations start with a challenge to our primary identity. Look at verse three, verse seven, and verse nine. I'll read them briefly. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And then verse seven, if you then will worship me, which is a betrayal of his identity, it will all be yours. And then verse nine, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. If you are the son of God, are you? Well, if you are, then you should do these things. What we didn't read is that in Luke chapter 3, right before the temptation of Christ in the wilderness is Jesus' genealogy. It's a list of names of Jesus' heritage, which is important. But right before that is the last story of Jesus before the temptation. So the last thing that Jesus did is just a couple of verses up in Luke chapter 3, and it's the baptizing of Jesus by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And Jesus goes into the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist, and the, the crowds all hear a voice raining down from heaven, speaking out loud, and God the Father looks down and says, this is my beloved son. You are my beloved son, Jesus. And then he says, and with you I am well pleased. Jesus has just heard a cosmic heavenly declaration audibly from God the Father that you are my son. And then literally the very next thing that happens to Jesus, it reads this way in the book of Matthew. He goes right from his baptism into the wilderness. Two verses in to his temptation, Satan is saying things like this. 
Are you the son of God? I know that you just heard that declared over you. You had a kind of a mountaintop high. That was cute. That was awesome. Dove came down. It was great. But here, I, I don't know. Are you? Is, is God your father? If, if you're the son of God, I, I mean, maybe, are we sure about that? Every temptation first begins, every temptation first begins with an invasion of my identity. I have to believe and commit to being someone other than my truest God-given identity first. And then the acting out comes. Then the turning stone into bread and the bowing down to Satan and getting in shackles in my fantasy world. And then the jumping off of temples and demanding that God do something that I think he should do right now. Only then do those acting outs come. But before any of that happens, before there's any of those acting out for evil ways or damaging ways or harmful ways, I have to first take on a new identity that is not true about me. You and I cannot fall into temptation without first believing something about us that is not true. We have to take on a false identity contrary to the one that is our firmest and foundational God-given identity before we ever step out into any vice, any fantasy world, or jump off any temples. You and I not only have to forget who we are, we have to believe we aren't who God says we are before we ever act out. In other words, you and I, before we do anything of damage, anything of evil, anything of harm, we must first commit an act of self-betrayal. And here's what I mean by that. Your God-given identity is your truest self. If you belong to Jesus, you are a child of the King. If you belong to Jesus, you are a son or a daughter of the Most High. That is your firmest identity. You belong to God. And because that is now who you are, according to Scripture, because that is who you are, according to God the Father, any time we act out of a different identity, where I don't believe that I'm God's child, where I act out of a different place, I'm betraying my truest self. I actually have to commit an act of betrayal against my truest self before I ever act out in some damaging or harming way. And any time we act out, we have already self-betrayed. And do you know the harm that's done to everyone around you? Do you know the harm that's done to you when you self-betray? Do you know what betrayal does to someone over time? Over and over and over and over and over again. When we betray our truest self, which is God's children, when we betray that identity and then act out of a different identity, we are betraying ourselves. Do you know that betrayal erodes a soul? You know what it does to us over and over, repeatedly, when we act out of a, a false identity, what betrayal does to us and everyone around us? Now, I know that's a lot. We're going to keep going, because there's a lot more. <laughs> We're going to go a little bit further into what Satan is doing here. On this challenge of identity, on this invasion of my truest self, on this invasion of who we are, and who God has said we are. Satan goes one step further. On the first and third temptations, it's explicitly so. On the second temptation, it's kind of implicitly so. But on the first and third temptations, Satan says the same exact line when he's challenging the identity. He says, if you are the Son of God, 
challenge to the identity, if you're the son of God, then do this act. Turn the stone into bread, jump off this temple, bow down and worship me. If you are the son of God, prove it. In other words, perform something to prove who you are. If you are God's son, if you belong to God, prove it, display it, act on it. Do something, Jesus, to prove to me that you actually are who God says you are. Merit something. Give me some evidence. Give yourself some evidence to prove to everyone watching, which is just me and Jesus at this point, Satan is saying, give something, give some evidence, some acting out, some meriting, some performing. Do something that proves this identity that you claim is yours. God just told you he's your son. Great, if that's true, do something to prove it. Perform your way into a solid confidence that you are who God really says you are. And so when that hamster wheel starts going, when Satan starts throwing those arrows and begins to invade our identity to say, if you really are God's child, then do something to prove it. Here's what that turns into. Well, then I have to be more spiritual. And there's always more to do. And I can't be struggling with the things that I'm struggling with because God's children wouldn't struggle with that. I have to have these new experiences. I have to stop feeling certain ways. Do you want to be sure that you're God's son? Hey, those are God's words, not mine. You're God's son, right? Well, if you are, maybe do something to prove that that's actually true. So now the task list begins to build. The resume increasing begins to exhaust me. And I would try to do something. It's, the, it's this vain attempt to pad my spiritual fear and my spiritual unrest that I'm not actually who God says I am. And so I need to go do something to prove to myself that I actually am who God says that I am. And so here's the sinisterness of Satan. He begins to have me build my resume up of acts of obedience and righteousness. Do good stuff. Be more spiritual. Do better things, and all the while, what I'm actually doing with that is I'm using that to fall back onto as my confidence that I really am who God says I am. I'm so afraid, I'm so anxious, I'm so unsteady, and the way that Satan would love to get me to try to calm and quiet that place is to try to prove to myself and everyone around me that I actually am who God says I am, who God has already said that I am. God saying it isn't enough. I have to go prove it. And so that looks like a whole bunch of different things in our day and age. You need to go be more aware. You need to go read some more books. You need to master the Enneagram. You need to, be, you need to go do a bunch of things that prove you actually get it. And then when you prove that you actually get it, then maybe you'll have the confidence that you want to believe that you actually are who God says you are. Is it possible, I know this is hard to wrap our head and our hearts around, is it possible that Satan is just as sinisterly involved in getting me to try to prove my God-given identity to the world as he is when he's trying to get me to participate in my favorite vice? Is he more involved when he's trying to get me busy, when he's trying to get me doing more things to try to prove something to myself and everybody else? That Satan's behind that? But the temptation of Satan is the subtle call singing to the heartstrings to tip the scales of doing, 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 doing more, doing more, doing more, instead of being. Because doing makes me feel worthy. Doing relieves my conscience, or so I think. Doing gives me a resume to point to, internally and externally, so that I can view myself the way that I want to view myself. But being, 
just being God's son would require that I receive an identity that the Lord has given me without any merit or deserving. And it may force me, just being, may force me to believe that I am as loved as I am and I haven't earned a dime of it. See, here's what's crazy about Jesus. Jesus was just given an identity by the Father at his baptism. Chronologically, timeline is important here. Jesus gets baptized before he's done one miracle. Jesus gets baptized before he's performed any acts of kindness or mercy. Jesus gets baptized before he does anything, before he performs anything. Jesus hears from his Father, you are my son, and with you I am well pleased, before he's performed anything. Jesus was given an identity that was not tied to his performance. And now Satan is challenging that identity. Surely, Jesus, it can't be this good. Certainly, God wouldn't be pleased with you unless you go prove how thankful you are, how much you really are God's son. And if Satan wants to keep me from believing that I am loved as I am and not as I have earned, if Satan wants to keep me from believing that, the best way he can get me to do that is to perform, to do, so that I will then begin to believe that my identity is tied to my performance. So that I will get the cross wired, I will get the ropes tangled, I will get confused when I'm trying to convince myself, am I God's son? Well, let me look at my resume, let me look at what I've been doing, let me look at all my acts, has it been enough? And then maybe I'll try to stand on that sandcastle and try to believe that I really am God's son because of what I've done. And it will drive people insane because it's never enough. You can't do enough to convince yourself you really do belong to Jesus. I will begin to believe that my identity is wrapped up in my doing for Jesus instead of my identity wrapped up in my being chosen by Jesus. And so the temptation to perform, to do more, to prove yourself is what Satan is after in each of these temptations. And so is it possible that resisting Satan's taunts Resisting Satan's temptation is to do the nearly impossible work of just letting yourself be loved by Jesus. That Satan has no interest in you knowing that you are loved apart from what you do. Because if he can get you to try to do stuff to prove that you are, he's one. Jesus, if you're God's son, I guess you are. He just said you are. Well, that's great. Let's prove it. That Satan is singing to the heartstrings so loudly, but so subconsciously in the battle of doing versus being. So that's the heart of the temptations. Glad we've covered that. Point two. (laughs) Heart of the temptations. Now, the heart of the responses. This will be briefer, I promise. Look at Jesus' responses. Each of Jesus' responses come from the Bible. Each of Jesus' responses come from Scripture Each of them, more specifically, come from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. It should stop us all a little bit, like maybe give us a reality check, that if in Jesus' waging war with his enemy, he needed to quote scripture, you and I probably will too. Like if Jesus needed it, we probably do too. And I wish I had time to go deep into each scripture reference. I wish I had time to go into each one that Jesus pulls out. But the main reason why Jesus quoted scripture is that scripture tells you who God is. 
And if you know who God is, you will know who you are too. That's why Jesus is quoting scripture. This is who the God of Israel is and says that he is. And therefore, if I know that, I know who I am. Because I know who God is, I know who I am because my identity is tied to him. And so if I know who God is, then I can know who I am. And scripture is the only source of being authoritative in telling you who God is. It's the only thing powerful enough. It's the only thing unchanging enough that when the arrows are flying and the assault is happening and the floodwaters are raging, you and I are not strong enough to swim in the flood. You and I have got to have something outside of ourselves, beyond ourselves, that tells us who God is and therefore tells us who we are. Because if we don't, we've already lost because you will begin to imagine things about God and you will begin to write stories about God that aren't true. But the chaos and the fog and the arrows and the flood is too much that if you don't have an anchor, if you don't have something to hold on to, you will have no idea who God is. And if you have no idea who God is, you have no idea who you are, and Satan has invaded your identity. You and I have to have a fortress to run into. You and I have to have a haven from the raging waters. You and I have to have wings to shelter inside of. You and I have to have a shield to hide behind. And only Scripture can do that for you. Only Scripture can tell you who God is. And only if you know who the Lord is can you know who you truly are. And so the point is this. This is what Jesus is doing so masterfully as our wilderness guide here, showing us how to encounter our enemy. Jesus quotes scripture to root him in his knowledge of who God his Father is and therefore who he is, which means, to put it in our language that we used just a little bit earlier, Jesus is saying, I will not self-betray. I know who my God is, so I know who I am. I don't need to self-betray. I know who I am. I know who my God says I am, and I know he is who he says he is because of what he says to his word in us. So, that's the heart of the temptations, the heart of the responses in Scripture. And this, that, those first two points are Jesus showing us how to do war, how to do battle with our enemy. Something else was going on. Something deeper was going on. And in this final few minutes, I want to take a look at the heart of Jesus. We have to ask, why in the world this encounter happened? And we have a little clue for us in the opening line of the very passage that we read. Verse 1 tells us this. It's subtle. We just kind of breeze over it, but it speaks and it, and it unearths, it unlocks a treasure chest for us and answers the question, why in the world would he be doing this? Verse 1 says that Jesus was led by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, that's the Spirit of God, that's the third member of the Trinity, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So the point is, is that do not be mistaken, Jesus is not passively being dragged onto this battlefield by his enemy. Jesus is not going kicking and screaming to the war front. Jesus is not um, unwilling to go. In fact, it's the complete opposite. Jesus initiated this fight. Whatever the Irish guy's name is in Braveheart, we're here to pick a fight. Like, I'm here, I'm here to do war. The picture is that Jesus is going to battle on his own terms to do war with his enemy. He is not a passive victim. He is going to fight. 
And so why is he going to fight? Why is the Spirit leading him into the wilderness to fight the enemy? Well, this is some of the mastery of the imagery of the storytelling here by Luke, the author. That if you know your Bible and you, and you know biblical themes, that it's almost a barrage that Luke is giving us. It's unmistakable what Luke wants our connotations to be going to. What, what Luke is referring to all throughout this passage, it's, it's, like, it's almost um, like obsessive. Luke is, is adamant that the reader know, hey, this story of Jesus should be reminding you of another story. That if you know your Bible and you hear the words 40 and wilderness, you should be immediately thinking about Israel in the Old Testament. Between Egypt and the Promised Land, Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. The same wilderness, by the way, geographically, that Jesus is in. And the similarities between Jesus and the Israelites keep coming. And what's meant for us to understand, it's like Jesus, the very first temptation is Jesus is hungry for bread. Ever heard of manna? Like that's, that's meant to bring us back, oh yeah, the Israelites were hungry for bread too. And all along the way, all over and over and over and over again in the wilderness, the people of God are tempted to put the Lord their God to test, to test the Lord, and they're not doing so well. That's the very language used here, that Jesus is being tested by the enemy over and over again. It's why Jesus uses Deuteronomy. Do you know what Deuteronomy is all about? It's the recap of the 40 years in the wilderness. And so Jesus could have quoted thousands of other scriptures. He certainly didn't have to only quote from Deuteronomy. He certainly didn't have to only quote from like a two-chapter span in Deuteronomy. All of his references come from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Like he's right there. He's trying to pull the reader into, oh yeah, someone has been in this wilderness before fighting the same battle. Someone has been in this wilderness for a same 40 kind of thing. That 40 is this number of trial, 40 is this number of suffering and being tempted and tried in the wilderness. And so all these similarities are jumping off the page that, wait, 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 wait. God's people have tried to do this before. God's people were doing the same exact thing before Jesus was. And so the similarities between Jesus and God's people are like jumping off the page. So why is he doing this? Because it's the one difference between Jesus for 40 in the wilderness and God's people for 40 in the wilderness is that at every turn in the wilderness, God's people failed. But at every turn in Jesus' wilderness, he succeeded. Israel failed in all of their attempts to obey God in the wilderness, but Jesus did not. And the similarities that are jumping off the page is meant to draw our attention deliberately to the one thing that is not similar. Jesus is a better Israel. Jesus is a better person to get a victory from than God's people. And Jesus' victory in the wilderness is not meant to be held over God's people to say, hey, well, if you guys get your act together, you could be a whole lot more, more like Jesus. Jesus didn't fail. You did. Sorry, you suck. No, what Jesus' victory is meant to say is, hey, your failures in the wilderness, those failures in the wilderness have given you an identity. Here's someone who's not going to fail in the wilderness, who didn't fail in the wilderness, who's here to give you a new identity. And Jesus' victory in the wilderness is your new identity. That now the failures that we have as God's people in the wilderness, the failures that our ancestors had as God's people in the wilderness, is not our primary identity anymore. Jesus' victory has secured for us a new identity. That Jesus has not come only to succeed where God's people failed. Jesus has come to be victorious so that he might represent us before God. 
You have failed when you faced temptation in the wilderness, Jesus said, but I didn't. Now let me represent you with my victory. Now your failures don't have to be your primary identity anymore. My victory can be your primary identity. Let me represent you before God. Your failures are not doing so great in that courtroom. Let me be the one that represents you with my victory. Let my obedience and righteousness become yours. Let me stand before God. Let me show my obedience and my perfect record so that your failures don't have to enter the courtroom evidence. Our call to worship, Hebrews 4, said the same thing that Avery read for us, that Jesus was tempted in every way as we were, yet was with, without sin. Why does the author of Hebrews want us to know that Jesus was tempted in every way that we were, but he didn't sin for any of them? If you keep reading, the author of Hebrews would say, so that he might be our perfect high priest to intercede before us and for us in front of a holy and righteous judge. That Jesus might take his perfect record of never failing. Jesus might take his perfect record of never self-betraying and use that perfect record of righteousness like a shield to defend his people when the enemy attacks them. Because of the victory of Jesus, you and I now have a secure identity and that identity has been given to us by God free of charge and free of earning. And the identity that we've been given now is not dependent on our successes or our failures. The identity we've been given is tied up with and wrapped up in Jesus' victory. And that's permanent and that's secure. So his victory now is a permanent record, a permanent covering of righteousness to secure you. Your failures or your successes don't have to enter the evidence room. Only Jesus' victory will be what the judge looks at. Jesus didn't merely resist temptation to show us how it is to be done. Jesus resisted temptation to give us a stronger, a more firm identity foundation, not only when we face temptation, but when we fail in the face of it. Like this new identity that Jesus has given us as our victorious representative, this new identity not only is what we fall into when we are trying to battle temptation so we don't self-betray, this new identity that Jesus has given us is this good, it's this strong, that even when you fail in temptation, when you leave here and you fail, your identity doesn't change. That when you don't believe you belong to Jesus, when you don't believe you're God's son and you self-betray and you act out of that place, Jesus is still your shield Jesus is still your firm foundation. His new identity, his victory has become your permanent identity. Your failures can't define you anymore because Jesus' victory now does. And yes, Satan is a master tempter. Satan is a master heartstring singer. But more importantly than that, the name that's used for Satan in here is the devil. That's the Greek word for the equivalent of the Old Testament Hebrew word Satan, Satan. That what Luke is wanting us to know is the devil who is Satan. Satan, the Hebrew word for Satan, do you know what it means? It means the accuser. That Satan's primary identity, his primary act is one of an accuser. And so Satan is not just tempting you to your favorite vice. He's not just tempting you to self-betray so that he can celebrate when you fail. He wants to use your failures to accuse you. He wants to use your failures to condemn you. And he's got a whole list of evidence of your failures. He's a master manipulator and accuser. He's a great prosecuting attorney. He's had thousands of years of practice, in the words of Martin Luther. He's really good at it. 
And so if you're gonna stand before the great accuser as he's tempting you to fail so that he can use your failures to accuse you, you need to have a victorious shield in front of you, an advocate, a great high priest whose name is love, a great high priest who has been tempted in every way but was without sin, so now his victory is our shield when the accuser throws his arrows. Jesus was led into the wilderness to succeed where we fail, to defend us from our greatest accuser, to give us something stronger and more firm, not only when we face temptation, but when we fail in the face of it. Let's pray. Jesus, our victor, um, we need you. And our souls and our minds and our hearts are tired from the war. And so would you come now and be our shield. We don't have enough of our own to stand on to um, stop the enemy's taunts. And so many arrows we feel are getting through to pierce. So would you silence um, our great accuser by your blood? Would you silence our great accuser by your victory and free us from attempting to silence him by our own successes and failures, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.